Many, many years ago, and many, many pounds ago, I was in high school and uh, played uh, tennis. I actually uh, didn't sign up for tennis originally, but um, I was in a typing class, probably the best class I ever took in high school. Paid off more for me than anything else because I learned how to type. I learned where the fingers go, and I got pretty good, and I can still type about 70 words per minute. and saves me a lot of time when I'm uh, writing papers in school and all that kind of thing, but uh, back, uh, back then, there were two semesters of the typing class, and semester number one was learn where the fingers go. Semester number two was we're going to work on speed. Well, when, I, when Mrs. Lawson told me that, I thought I'm not going to, uh, I don't think I can ever get any faster than I currently was. I was wrong, but I decided to transfer from that to JV Tennis. And there were 14 people in JV Tennis, and every day we'd play, and, and you'd always have to play the person, uh, if you were like number 14, like I was, you'd play uh, the number 13. I never could beat number 13, so I could never move up. Uh, but nevertheless, loved to play tennis, had a good friend of mine, Brian, and he was a much better tennis player than, than I was, and so we'd go out sometimes on Saturday and play tennis, uh, and he would usually beat me. But one time I just sort of made it up in my mind, I'm going to win this match. And I kept telling myself, I'm going to win. And now my skills weren't any better than they were before the match began, but I kept telling myself, I'm going to win this match. And I got to the point where I said, I'm going to win this point. And I kept telling myself, I'm going to win this point. Turns out I beat him that day, a rare occurrence, but I did beat him that day, and I learned something about attitude I learned something about the power of the mind that there is incredible power when you think a certain way God made us that way and we're able to do more and beyond if we think a certain way than if we have a different type of attitude and so your life largely is about your attitude it's not only about your attitude but there's a great component to your life that is strictly your attitude and uh, we're in First Peter, and we're in chapter 4 now of First Peter. We've been studying what it means to go through suffering and how we can endure suffering. Peter talks about that in these middle chapters of his first book. And if you're going to overcome the suffering that comes along in your life, you're going to have to have the right attitude. Now, having the right attitude won't make all of your problems go away. Just because you've got a cheery disposition doesn't mean that your bills are going to get paid all of a sudden, whereas before they might not. And so it won't make your problems go away, but it will empower you to help overcome those problems and not be weighted down by those problems. And so today we're going to talk about moving beyond suffering to living real living and Peter tells us about two attitudes that we need to have in 1st Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 and these are the verses that we'll look at today there's two attitudes that we'll we'll find in this passage of scripture let's read that entire verse or that group of verses there 1st Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible it says therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable practices. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The first attitude that we need to have as we deal with the sufferings of man, and specifically the sufferings caused by our own sin, is to wage war against sin. We need to wage war against sin. If you want to move from being bound and, and shackled by suffering to going beyond that and becoming a person who really lives life to the fullest, as a Christian, you need to declare war against sin. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus is our example in these verses. This is what he did. Think about what Jesus did to sin. Verse 1 again begins this way. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose arm yourselves also with the same purpose what did jesus do to get to sin well he killed it he went to war against sin and he conquered it in second corinthians 5 20 we read for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god and so we know what scripture teaches that jesus when he died on the cross he actually became our sin. He went, to en he went to war against this enemy that we call sin. How did he do it? By taking all of our sins, all of our guilt, all of our shame upon himself. And he was crucified. Sin is not something that we should play with. Sin is not something that we should make light of. It's not something that we should enjoy. Sin is the reason your Savior died. If you're a Christian and you say that you love Jesus, you need to realize why he died. He died because of this ugly thing called sin. He died because he went to war against it. He died because it needed to be killed. Sin needed to die. Sin is your enemy. Sin is something that will destroy your life. Everything that you love about your life can be destroyed by sin. Sin is something, it is a power that seeks to kill you. Sin is not something that's cute and we should just laugh about. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would knowingly let a murderer come into your house and threaten your family? Well, none of us. We wouldn't do that. I mean, if we knew the, the murderer was coming, what would we do? Time to get a shotgun. Time to put an end to this, right? We would defend our family, and rightfully so. None of us would allow, would allow a murderer to come into our house and threaten our family. But that's what your sin is. Sin is a murderer. Sin is a murderer that wants to come into your life and take away 
your very life if possible, and if not that, the joy of your life. Sin is a murderer that wants to come in and threaten your family. And so we do ourselves no great service when we allow all kinds of nonsense and sin and debauchery into our homes, into our lives. We have to arm ourselves with the same purpose, verse 1 says, that Jesus had. What was his purpose? His purpose was to go to war against sin. So we need to think about sin the same way that Jesus thought about it, as a terrible enemy that needs to be destroyed. Verse 1 continues. It says we need to do this because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. Now, you might say, well, I don't understand this because it doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, lots of people suffer, but they keep on sinning, right? I mean, suffering itself, by itself, won't keep you from sinning, will it? No, it won't. Not by itself. As an example, we think back to our biblical history from the, when the Pharaoh in Egypt. What happened to him? One plague after another plague came upon the Pharaoh, came upon his land. What did the Pharaoh do? How did he respond? He kept sinning. He kept disbelieving God. In fact, he took it to the next step. He took it to the next power. And so he continued. Suffering itself will not make you keep sinning. I mean, all of us know people who've been in pain. They've been suffering in some way. Physical pain or maybe emotional pain. And what happens to them? They curse God and they grow more bitter. So suffering itself isn't going to get you to heaven. Suffering itself isn't going to stop you from sinning. But when you suffer with Christ as Lord of your life, that's the difference. If Christ is truly the Lord of your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your attitude, if He's the Lord of your life when suffering comes along, then you will begin to have a different attitude about sin. When Christ is Lord and you suffer, you remember that this world and its pleasures are temporary. They don't compare to what Christ has in store for you. And so you're very willing to trade in the sufferings of this life, even the pleasures of this world, for that which Christ has promised. Sin is your enemy because it enslaves you. Sin is a power. It's not just something you do, but it is a power that dwells within you, that dwells all around us. And it is a power that if it is not starved and shut out, it will enslave you. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But Jesus Christ sets us free. Two verses later, Jesus said, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And really, that's the only way to be free from sin. It is through the Son, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so if we're going to win this war against sin, we have to do something that's very important. There's a dynamic that we have to engage in. We have to replace one thing with another. We have to replace sin with the will of God. You know the only way to uh, change a habit is to replace that bad habit with a good habit. You can't just take that habit away. Your, your body, your life, your whatever's within you 
wants something to do. And so you have to replace bad habits with good habits. It's that way with sin. We have to replace sin with doing the will of God. Look what Peter says in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You're going to spend time in this flesh. What does that mean? You've got a physical body, whether you like it or not. You've got a physical body. It's getting older. Some cases it's getting bigger, whatever it is. But you've got some time in this physical body here on this earth. And Peter says, it's time for you to quit spending the time that you have in this physical body for the lusts of men. Stop that. Instead, let's go with the will of God. Time is the most important resource that you have. If I asked you what's the most valuable thing you have, and you were to say, well, my property, I got X number of acres. Or you might say, well, my house, my car, my bank account, my 401k. None of that compares to time. Time is the most important, most valuable piece of anything that you have. It's a resource. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom. I hear people all the time say, Well, I, I just don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. You know, typically... The illustration is that the pastor or someone at church wants you to do something. We need someone to work the nursery. We need someone to do this. We need someone to do that. Well, I just don't have enough time. If you don't have enough time to do something, you need to ask if it's really God's will. Because there's always enough time to do God's will. I can't tell you specifically what God may be leading you to do, what the Spirit of God may be prompting you to do. But I do know this that there's always enough time to do God's will. The only time there's not enough time to do God's will is when we fill up that time with things that are not God's will. The most powerful time management word in the, in the universe is the word no. It's the word no. You're going to have to learn to say no to some things if you're going to say yes to God's word. And so how are you going to spend the rest of the time that God has given you? You can waste all of that time on what Scripture calls human passions, the passions of the flesh. But you know, you'll only regret it when you stand before Jesus someday. Or you can spend your time to the best of your ability doing the will of God, doing what God has called you to do. Now, if you think that God's will is a burden, I can tell you that you're not living in God's will. Yeah, sometimes life is hard. Sometimes God does require us to go through difficulties. But when you're living in God's will, God gives you a peace and joy that makes those burdens lighter. He gives you a, a peace in your heart that is beyond comprehension, beyond anything that someone looking at your life might say that you should have. Sometimes people ask the question, why is God allowing me to go through this? Why, am I why do I have to go through this suffering? God owes me an explanation, I've heard some people say. I've heard some people sort of justify it in this way. They'll say, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll choose to live for God after he tells me what he wants me to do. I want God to reveal his plan for me first, and, and then I'll decide to live for him. Psalm 33, verse 11, though, says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart 
extends to all generations. You might not know what God is doing in your life. You might not know why you're going through suffering. But please know that what God allows in your life is best for you. You can always trust Him. And if you can always trust Him, you can always say yes to Him, even if you don't understand everything that He's doing. It comes down to this. You need to base your life not on God's explanations. God does not owe you an explanation. But you need to base your life on God's promises. God has made promises to you, and He will fulfill those promises. Next, we need to remember what we were before we met Christ. Do you remember what that was? For some of us, that was a long time ago. Some of us came to Christ. We were blessed enough to come to Christ even as a child. And we may not have lived a totally uh, debauchery-filled life, you know, before we came to Christ. We were quite young. Uh, but some of us, it may be more fresh in our mind. What were you like before you met Christ? Verse 3 describes that. And Peter says it this way. For the time already passed, the time that's already gone out the door, that time that's already gone out the door is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter says, all that time that you've wasted up until now, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Isn't it time now to spend the rest of your days living for God? Now, you don't need to dwell on what you used to do before you came to Christ. And you certainly don't need to have the attitude that looks back on your life before Christ when you're engaged in all these activities that we just read about. And you say, oh, those were the good old days. You, don't, you better not long for those days. Because those good old days can create quite a mess for you if you engage in those once again. You need to be reminded of the eternal danger that those quote-unquote good old days could get you in. See, now that you know Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You used to do your heart's evil desires. You used to let those desires enslave your life. You used to hang out with evildoers. Like he talks about drinking parties, carousing, drunkenness. You used to set your heart on false gods, that lawless idolatry, those abominations. But now Christ has set you free. Deuteronomy 5.15 We read, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You used to be a slave in Egypt. Not anymore. God has brought you out of there. You, well, you might say, well, Pastor, I've, I've been... I've given my life to Christ, but I still struggle with the, some of the same sins that I used to. What do I do? Romans 6, 11 tells us what to do. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, it's about your mind. It's about your attitude. Because the truth is that Christ has made you dead to sin. But if you don't believe it, if in your heart and in your mind you unthinkingly believe, well, I'm just a slave to my sin. 
just a slave to my passions. I just can't overcome them. Then you'll always be that. It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Instead, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6.11 tells us to be dead. Consider ourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you keep feeding that old way of life, you'll never get victory. You've got to start feasting on God's Word. You've got to let this Bible become a daily part of your routine and absorb it. Begin to feast on it because it is spiritual food to you. So attitude number one, declare war on sin. Attitude number two, be patient toward people without Christ. Be patient toward people without Christ. What am I talking about? Well, sometimes we suffer simply because we're Christ followers. Remember, the whole theme of this section is about suffering. Sometimes we suffer simply because we follow Christ. Sometimes people give us a hard time. They think, ah, oh, those dumb Christians, they're, they're just unintelligent, they're weak. They use Jesus as a crutch. But those people, those lost friends, those lost co-workers, they don't understand the change that's gone on in your heart. Verse 4 tells us, And all this they, those lost people, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. Once you come to faith in Christ, your friends may be surprised that you've got a different attitude. You've got different practices. You don't want to go hang out at the bars. You don't want to go uh, do all the things that you used to do. They may say, hey, what's wrong with you, man? They wouldn't say it this way, but they're basically inviting you. Don't you want to wreck your body with alcohol and drugs anymore? Don't you want to destroy your marriage? Don't you want to destroy your family? Don't you want to ruin your life? Don't you want to be like me? And the answer is, no, we've come to a new way of thinking. We want Christ and what Christ gives us rather than what the world has to offer. When someone lives for God, people think that that person's gone crazy. Oh, man, they're just a religious nut now. They've gone off the deep end. This is nothing new. Back in Acts chapter 26, verse 24, Festus told the Apostle Paul, You are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. Festus thought that the Apostle Paul had gone crazy. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It says, When Jesus' family heard about Jesus, what he was doing, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He's out of his mind. Think about that. Jesus' own family. His brothers. We got to find this guy. We need to put him in an institution. We need to find him a psychologist or a psychiatrist. He needs some Ritalin or something because he has he is got a bad case of ADHD. He's just gone all over the place, and he just can't stop healing people. He's out of his mind. We've got to do something for him. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus' brothers and sisters when he appeared to them raised from the dead? Oops, I think we got it wrong. So what do you do when people treat you like you're crazy simply because you're a believer in Christ? Be patient with them. Be patient with them. You may not 
agree with their lifestyle. I hope you don't. You may not participate in their sin. I hope you don't. But remember, the people that think you're crazy for following Christ, they are blind to spiritual truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, the little with a little g, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Listen, the message that you have is the only message that can set them free. 1 Peter 3.15, which we read a few weeks ago, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Lost people, they might judge you. They might think you're crazy. But one day, God's going to set it all right. He's going to judge them. Verse 5 says simply that, But they will, give account, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, only God can change an unbelieving heart to a believing heart. And if God alone can do it, then what you have to do to see your lost family and friends, your lost co-workers come to faith in Christ, is you have to pray. God has to quicken their spirit. He has to make them alive because they are dead in their sin. But God can do it. We must pray because God works through our prayers. So don't argue with lost people. If, they're, if they want an honest discussion, you can talk to them about the Christian faith. Grant them understanding, the best understanding that you have. But if they want to simply argue and call you names, don't do that. Just pray. Pray for them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Scripture says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So Paul says we, we need to pray. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, Paul was writing that while in prison for his faith. It doesn't matter what this world does for you, does to you, rather. People may judge you for your belief in Christ, but God's going to reward you for it. In verse 6, the Bible says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. What's he talking about? Judged to those who are dead. Judged to those who are dead in their sins. We preach the gospel to those that have not yet responded. The good news of the gospel, even though Satan has blinded their minds, blinded their eyes to the truth of who Jesus truly is and why he came. We preach the gospel nonetheless because it may be that day that the Spirit of God quickens a person's heart to believe in the gospel so that they may live according to the will of God. You know, if you declare war on sin, your suffering will produce godliness and character in your life. If you're a believer in Christ and you have the attitude that today I'm going to declare war on sin 
And then you continue to suffer because of your faith in Christ, or even the sufferings that are common to man, what will develop in your heart is a godliness, what will develop in your heart is character that is eternal, and that is so much greater than suffering that you go through. And if you remain patient with those who don't understand, patient with lost people, your godliness that's exhibited through your suffering will be a witness to them, and they may come to faith in Christ. This is the message that Peter has for us today.